As we look at the, at the fruit of the Spirit, one thing that you might notice each preacher come up and, and try and avoid saying is, just be more loving. Just have more joy. Just be patient. Christoph said it in our first sermon on love, and it's, and it's worth reminding ourselves, the fruit of the Spirit is not a new kind of law. It's so easy to think of these things as being like a new Ten Commandments, and so when we hear them, we just set about trying to be more joyful, being more patient. And so we, we come and we approach our kids with this mindset of beatific peace and, and serene patience, and then the questions start. Or we hit traffic on the way to work, or, or concerns about money creep in. And this facade that we have built, trying to make ourselves into the, the perfect model of, of saintly Christian gliding through life, it starts to crack, it starts to shake. And pretty soon we are a frustrated, angry, and stressed out wreck. But if we look at the context that of the fruit of the Spirit, it is with Paul telling us that Christ has set us free, free to be joyful, to have peace, to be patient. Not, not as a command, but as a result of knowing him. And so the reason that we are looking at James this morning is that James gives us a way of seeing how we can be patient in the midst of trials and sufferings. It's a letter full of explanation of how and why we can see the fruit in our lives, not by force of will, but through understanding the gospel and receiving God's grace to us. So let's dive into the passage here. Look with me to verse one. Now listen, you rich people. And maybe that strikes a bit of an ominous chord with some of us here. But we need to be careful to, to understand the context of what James is saying. That, that phrase, now listen, is literally, come now. And it's a phrase that was used at the time to introduce an argument against people who, who weren't there, or maybe for imaginary opponents. We do the same thing all the time. We, we pretend to talk to people who aren't there so that we can be harsh or, or funny in some kind of way. So James here isn't talking to people in the gathering about how they are supposed to use their wealth. Instead, he is, he is drawing an Old Testament themes to talk about unbelievers, people who don't live dependent on God. You can see if you look back in chapter 4, he does the same thing for people who think they can control their own destiny without any reference to God. And here in chapter 5, he talks against those who trust in their worldly or material possessions to save them or to give them meaning in their lives. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll find lots of allusions to, to the rich versus the poor. And it's not necessarily about wealth, because you'll also find lots of allusions to God blessing people in that way. Rather, it's more metaphorical of the poor as the righteous poor, those that depend on God because they have to, they have no other choice. And the rich are cast as, as the self-righteous or the unrighteous, those who disrespect God by, by raising themselves up or ignoring God because they think that they don't need him. And what tended to happen was that the, the unrighteous or the rich oppressed the poor and the righteous poor. And even if we take that metaphor out of it, what we get to the bones of here is the people of God face opposition. So he's not bashing the rich Christians who hear this letter. 
although we probably should be careful because there is maybe a, a subtle warning in them to, to remember that wealth does allow people to get a false impression that they can live independently of God, which is just devastating their spiritual health. And so the wealthy among us should be particularly careful of that danger. But he's not condemning you here. What he is doing is, is setting up a context of suffering trials where Christians are facing opposition and oppression. And James goes on in, in verses 3 to 6 to, to mock those people who trust in their wealth rather than in God. And the reason he does this is to show the oppressed people that they shouldn't yearn for the other side. They shouldn't imagine that they are on the losing side or the wrong side of this dynamic. They shouldn't wish to change places with the unrighteous wealthy. Now, it's so easy to think, if only I had a little bit more money, then things would be easier. Or just a little bit more, and, and then I'd be happy. James is essentially trying to mock that idea, to show the people that longing to change places isn't the correct response to their situation. Wanting the to be the oppressor rather than the oppressed isn't the way of Jesus. James sets out that depending upon ourselves and our wealth to get us through these trials and sufferings is just futile. But then in verses 7 to 11, he outlines another way to engage with these struggles. So look with me there. We can see the response is patience. No call to arms, no five-step plan to get them out of that situation. The command is to have patience. But this isn't just an instruction to, to bear up under pressure. It's not a, if you've got lemons, make lemonade type piece of advice. Instead, the patience that James talks about is a type of, of purposeful waiting that has, at its end, trust in the Lord. And that is shown by three admonitions to patience that ground its end in God, and then three examples that point us to God's faithfulness. So let's firstly look at the commands, and then we'll tackle the images after. So look with me at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Here we have people who are, are crying out against their oppressors, oppressors being told to be patient, and the way that they can be patient is by looking to God. They are able to be patient, to wait in their situation, because they know that God is coming. And that means that they know that, that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, that on the day of the Lord, he will make all things new, that the things that man meant for evil, God will use for good. They are able to wait because they know that their oppressors won't get away with it, that there will be justice. They are directed to look towards a time when everything will be made right. And because they trust in God, they can be patient and bear up under their current situations. Trusting in God has made them able to be patient. And we see this as well in verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So here the command is repeated, and then it's added to. Be patient, establish your hearts. 
So the sense of this command is, is to firmly fix your heart or, or commit your heart. Think of the building of a house on a rock. You are to establish something that won't be moved. So here we are commanded not only to look to God and His coming, but to cement our hearts there, to fix our eyes upon God's faithfulness and upon His promises, to commit ourselves to this way of living and of thinking. And again, we are given the reason for this, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So because God is coming, wait on Him. The idea is like where Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. When God comes, these trials and sufferings that we are facing, that James's audience was facing, will be utterly irrelevant. So instead of fixing your eyes on your hearts and investing all your wealth and your energy and your time in things of this world, things that are temporary, look to God. Fix your eyes on the things of eternity, the things that will still matter to you in a thousand years. Because you know that God is coming, you can be patient in your current trials. You can wait in this time because you see it in the context of eternity. And again, trusting in God has made them able to be patient. And then we get this final command in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. And if you look then, the reason that they're given do not to grumble is that so they aren't going to be judged. And by the judge who is near. So there's another reminder that, that God is coming. Another sense that they need to keep this bigger picture in mind when they're going through trials. But there's also a sense in which their grumbling shows a heart that isn't content with letting God be God. They're told not to grumble against one another so that they can't be accused of not trusting in God. Grumbling is often seen as a, an external sign of this internal discontentment, of not resting in the situation. And it effectively says that, that God isn't doing things the way that we want them done. But James warns against this. Which, which kind of makes sense, right? How can we say that we are waiting patiently on God if we are complaining about how He is acting? But if we trust in Him, then how we think and speak about our situations will be affected. So trusting in God affects how they live and speak. Trusting in God conforms their outward demeanor to their internal sense of peace. So again, we see trusting in God has made them able to be patient. So hopefully you can see here through all these commands, James isn't just saying, be patient as an act of self-control. No, he's saying, look to God and you will find yourself becoming patient. Patience is cultivated by trusting in God. And then added to these three commands, there are three images or, or examples. The first one is of the farmer in verse 7. In this image, we get a farmer who is waiting for the early and the late rains. Now, that early and late rains is actually a reference to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, where God shows his faithfulness and his provision by talking about how he gives the early and the late rains. So the example of the farmer is not just saying, 
At a certain point, he's helpless, so just accept it. But rather, the thrust of this image is that he does what he does because ultimately he trusts in the Lord. He is able to be patient and wait on those reins because he knows with a certainty that the Lord will bring them, that the Lord will provide. He doesn't have that fruit now, but he can rest without fear and without grumbling because he knows who God is and what he has said. Trusting in what God has said allows him to wait patiently for what he knows will come. The next example James gives us and gets us to look at are to the prophets. Now, you'll notice he doesn't pick out any specific prophets. So the sense here is more of, of the prophets as, as a group. And the Jews at the time would have, would have looked up, would have revered these prophets as, as the pinnacles of faith, men to be admired. So by getting the reader to consider the prophets as examples of suffering and patience, James is trying to remind the reader that, that when the prophets suffered, they turned to the Lord. And that's true for Job as well in verse 11. Even through all the sufferings that Job endured, he wouldn't curse God and die as his wife suggested. Indeed, in his final speech to God, he says, I know that you can do all things. And it shows that, that when he finally looked to God, all his complaints vanished and he repented. And so for the prophets and for Job, seeing the Lord looking to God was enough to dispel all their doubts. It was enough to keep them steadfast, their faith and their hearts established, trusting that God was good all the time, even when they couldn't see it. It was God who was, it was who, sorry, it was who God was that cultivated patience in them. Seeing God, trusting in God, having a relationship with God, produced in them an ability to look at their situations through lenses that God had provided which allowed them to be patient with those circumstances. It allowed them to exhibit a purposeful waiting, a confident expectation of what is to come, as they knew that ultimately God was working. The thrust of this passage is that patience is cultivated in us as we look to God, as we trust in Him, and as we see our lives in the context of eternity. So if we can see our lives as part of God's big redemptive plan, if we can see the things that cause us stress or, or the opposition that we face within the time frame of eternity, then the importance of those worldly issues, as important as they might be to, hear, to us here and now, just take on a lesser role. Now, I'll admit, I get stressed about money. If we're coming to the end of the month and a big expense goes out, then I am, I'm freaking out. But if I was to know that that next week I would receive an anonymous donation of a million pounds, then I doubt I'd be concerned by the takeaway that we just ordered. Now, that wouldn't be me doing some mental exercises to become more patient. That would be patience being cultivated in me by something else. That would be me looking to what is coming and knowing that that check will make all my current fears just trivial. And that's how we are to view the fruit of the Spirit when it comes to patience. When we look to Jesus, when we know and love Him, being united to Him changes us. Not as something that we earn, but as a byproduct of having Him in our lives. So this is how the, the, the Spirit cultivates patience within us, by showing us Jesus 
and helping us to trust in him. And through that process where we see Jesus, know Jesus, orientate our hearts and our lives to Jesus, where we start to become more like Jesus, we start to get a worldview that is so much greater than before. In applying Jesus and the coming of the Lord to our situations, the Spirit changes our internal monologue. He prevents us from putting too much value on the things of this world, our circumstances and the way in which we feel that the world should work, and instead gets us to invest and value in the things of God. So think about how Jesus lived. When the people saw his miracles and wanted to make him king, he left so they couldn't. He said, my time has not yet come. He waited, knowing that his path path was set in eternity past. He modeled how to live according to God's ways and importantly, in God's time. And he was able to do that in his human nature because he lived in dependence upon the Father through the Spirit. And so for us in this series, we're thinking of becoming like Jesus. We're not just trying to imitate behavior, but have the Spirit mold our character to reflect some of the dependence that Jesus exhibited. Because there's a difference between being able to control your road rage through breathing techniques and then being able to have patience in the middle of the fiery furnace because you so know God that you can trust in what he's got for you. Having said that, allowing the Spirit to form us doesn't give us license to just sit back and, and do nothing. We can't ever allow our faith to become a purely academic thing or, or church to be some sort of spectator sport. Patience might ultimately be a secondary product, but we have to be so conscious of what we, do, what we are doing to apply and live out these truths to our lives. So although we aren't talking about conforming to certain external behaviors, we do need to be active in, in fixing our eyes upon Jesus. So what I want you to think about now, and what I want you to be thinking about this week, is what are you letting form your life? It's obvious that something is forming us, right? Fashion fads, ways of speaking, our hobbies, our activities. We we don't just stumble into those ways of living. The wider culture and other things mold us into a certain image. So ask yourself, where are you investing yourself? And then ask yourself, what is that going to make you into? We all know the stereotypes of of the greedy banker, the narcissistic influencer, the, the heartless lawyer. And those jobs aren't bad in and of themselves. But we have those stereotypes because when people give themselves over to social media, when they give themselves over to to money or to power, that forms their hearts. So what are you giving yourself over to? What are you letting form your character? a life spent chasing the new job or the next experience or some social respectability will not make you like Jesus. So first off, you need to be really clear. Is this what you want? Is it what you really want in your heart of hearts? And it's easy to say here, yes, I want Jesus. But then later the noise of this world drowns out those desires in the, in the pinging of notifications or the drone of information. If you know that you want to be more like Jesus, but there are things that are distracting you or taking your focus, then you need to be clinical and surgical and brutal 
in rooting them out and giving yourself to the chance to hear that still, small voice. And if you need help doing that, or you don't know where to start, then, then ask your, your elder or chat with me or with Christoph. We'd love to help disciple you in whatever way we can. But if you're here and you think, yes, I've, I've made that space, then what? Well, then firstly, we need to be really serious about our Bible study, about our prayer life and how we engage in the local church. I feel like I say that every time that I, I preach, and it's not just a, it's a rote thing, but it's because these are the fundamental ways in which God has said He uses to conform us to His image. These are the means of grace, spending time in the Word, praying to God, and participating in the sacraments. Now, next week, we're going to have another baptism. And although the parents and the biological family will be excited, you all should be too. Not just because it's such a privilege to, to welcome another brother and sister into the church and, and celebrate those that are engaged to be the Lord's, but because in participating in that sacrament, we see the sign and the seal of the gospel. We see the sign of the covenant of grace to us. It is the mark of being in the family of God. As we come together, we remember and proclaim that Christ has claimed us as his own. So next week, as we rejoice as the spiritual family, we rejoice knowing that we are the people of God. And as the people of God, we want to know God. The, this Bible we preach from is, is God's special revelation to us. If you want to fix your eyes upon Jesus, then you need to get into it because nothing else comes close. So get your Bible, Bible open. Use a study Bible, Bible reading notes. Audio Bibles are great. Meet with friends and, and read it together. There's so many options here for us. But get it open and make it a habit. Ten minutes a day as you, as you get up or, or just before you bed, before you go to bed, read it as you're brushing your teeth. Whatever you need to do to get into the Word. And then do it. Follow it. Act on your faith. Let it transform your life and your activities. If you want to be like Jesus, then do what He did. He knew the Scriptures. He spent loads of time in prayer. That's not just a, a formulaic thing. The reason that I want you to think about making this a habit is because it makes us think about the things that are above and not on the things that are below. We want the, the consistent pursuit of Jesus to fill our minds and our hearts rather than the persistent noise of this world. We want to be more like Jesus. We want to see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But it's so easy for our circumstances or for the difficulties that James talks about to take center stage and, and crowd out everything else. The battle for all of us is in placing all these concerns in the context of eternity and accepting that the God that we worship is so good, so holy, that we can trust in him. So I pray that you become more patient. But I pray that it's because the Spirit has given you such a deep, abiding trust in God that you see Him above all else. We're going to take a moment now just to be still. And in that silence, we're just going to ask God to show us His goodness. And then we're going to come together again to close our service. So just for a minute, two minutes, the band are then going to come up and, and we're going to sing again.
but sit and pray and wait. And in that silence, let's look to God.